Bonjour and bienvenue, little bells, francophiles. Je m'appelle Lou, and in this podcast, I will help you to keep your Frenchy vibes flattering and lose yourself in France without even leaving home. In each episode, we chat about our French experiences with guests who live in Australia, in France, and right around the world, and we share ideas for how to stay connected to the francophile within you. Francophilers can now also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Francophile Fix, where I post little movies and clips to keep us all connected to France. Find the link to the Francophile Fix YouTube channel in the show notes from today's episode, as well as the Little Bells Francophiles website, Instagram, and a fabulous Frenchie Spotify playlist. Alors, aujourd'hui, we have a guest who has been on the podcast before. My husband, Paul, has travelled in France a number of times with me, and we chatted way back in episodes 16 and 17 about our experiences on our first trip to Paris together, which was followed by a road trip to Provence. But today, we're going to explore some of what we discovered in our more recent trip to France. Bienvenue to Little Bells Francophiles, Paulie. Ça va? Ça va bien. So, this episode of the Little Bells Francophiles podcast is part of a two-episode chat, as there is just too much to fit into one episode. So today, we're going to talk about our arrival and stay in Paris pre-our road trip, as well as our wonderful experiences that followed in the Loire Valley and down in the Pays Basque. And next time, we will be discussing our return back to Paris that took us through the Dordogne and our final days in Paris before our return to Australia. So, Paulie, luckily you share my love of France and all things French. This year, during the European summer, I went across first and you met me a week or so later. Now, I recall leaving London on their hottest day on record and then arriving in Paris for only the third time in recorded history that Paris had experienced days over 40 degrees. What do you recall of the weather in Paris when you arrived? Uh, yeah, it was very warm, like with delays and getting through customs and all the rest of it, it was quite late uh, when oh, I arrived right. on the Friday night. Yeah. Um, but it was still very light, even, and that was amazing. Like 10.30 is still quite light. I know. Um, in a northern hemisphere summer. Because when it's daylight savings here in Melbourne, in the peak of summer, our latest time for daylight is usually around about 9.30. I've never seen it be light for that late. Mm. And it felt like the day just went on forever. It was yeah. fabulous. Yeah, and it lent itself to uh, a Parisian culture of um, joining together on the riverbanks and mm. um, having a couple of drinks and they're playing music from their ghetto blaster or there might be a band playing. Mm. The other part about the hot weather in Europe, particularly this more extreme kind of weather they're seeing, um, is their buildings aren't constructed with hot temperatures in mind. They're built for cold temperatures in mind mm. about retaining heat rather than trying to let it go. So we were blessed. Our Airbnb host had bought a upright aircon. Yes. Um, which gave us some relief, particularly at night. I mean, during yes. the day. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's a couple of not negotiables that I have for choosing accommodation when travelling to France. One is that the apartment or hotel must have a lift if I'm not going to be on the ground floor, as many of those beautiful old buildings, they were built before the technology of a lift and they only have staircases and they're beautiful ornate staircases in some places, but they're not much fun to carry up your luggage and be lugging it up and down. So a lift is crucial for me. And then the second not negotiable is either air conditioning or heating, depending on the season. So we had, as you said, that beautiful, cute Airbnb on the top floor and the little dormer windows of a beautiful old building on the Ile Saint-Louis. And there was such a divine view of the river and a lift and aircon. So it was perfect for everything that I have on my list. But even with that, I just found it was too hot to do more than one thing a day. And I just needed to return to the apartment most afternoons to recover from the heat. So my advice is to really consider if travelling to Paris in the high peak of summer is right for you because even people who like hot weather may find the intensity of energy required when travelling and being a tourist in a city like Paris is very different from what it would be like when you happen to just enjoy the heat at home or on a relaxing holiday where you've got a pool. It's going to be difficult in the extreme heat and you don't really get good bang for your buck when you can't maximise your time there. I know you can do more until later at night, but you're going to be exhausted by that time. Good chance to have a siesta during the day. Absolutely. (laughs) But if you're paying for the accommodation and paying for everything else, probably not best bang for your buck. So, obviously, we were travelling this time in 2022 after a couple of years when that wasn't possible due to COVID. The last time that we went to France together was in those gorgeously rose-coloured pre-COVID years in about 2018, I think. September 2018. Yeah. What did you notice is different this time around post-COVID? Um, a lot of the, uh, say, waiters, service staff, I think were more open to English speaking, mm-hmm. both from their desire to learn. Mm-hmm. I remember one waiter insisted you either speak French or speak English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't confuse the two. I mean, mm-hmm. the staff seemed more, I don't think tolerance the right word, but accommodating. Mm. Mm. But maybe they'd missed the tourist over that time because there would have mm. been some fairly bleak periods for Paris and France during the COVID lockdown times from other countries, even when they weren't locked down. They didn't have many tourists for a long time. No, that's right. And they do rely on that dollar quite a bit, I think. Significantly. Or euro, I should say. Now, I had a week in Paris before you arrived and I caught up with some gorgeous friends I have chatted to here on the podcast. I went to Versailles to meet amazing baker and pastry chef Molly Wilkinson. I had a picnic in the Bouchemont Park in the 19th with tap dancer extraordinaire and Paris author, my beautiful friend, the divine Ruby Bookaboo. I had early morning coffee with photographer and podcaster Crystal Kenny. I enjoyed a wonderful late Arvo Aperol spritz with French lifestyle coach, the gorgeous Peter Hashimpour. And I had after work drinks like a local, which I was so excited about, on the river with author and all-round beautiful soul, Lindy Viondier. It was such a jam-packed week, but it was a week where I wasn't really a tourist. I was more seeing the city with people who live there. And I think for me, that was my favourite part of being in Paris on this trip, the deeper connections I made with some beautiful people and the way I got to experience life, even momentarily, in the way that people who live there get to experience or get to explore Paris. What was your favourite thing when you arrived in Paris on this trip? Uh, always visiting Charlene. 
Three, oh, three Chalene. Yes. Um, Love Chalene. Yeah, it's just a, a haircut here might be three, four months apart, depending on when I sort of feel like it. Um, but now two trips to Paris, two haircuts, it's sort of a whole experience. Yes. Um, not so cheap experience, but <laughs> fabulous experience all the same. It's interesting <laughs> that you say that as a man because it's usually – Women who will say, I'm going to go and do that when I go to Paris, now that they've heard this on the podcast, that's what I'm hearing from listeners. But I'm here to tell you that the men will love it because it is an out-of-the-box experience. And uh, my hair, it's the same as what it costs me here in Australia, but for men here in Australia, it's a lot cheaper than for women, so it's exactly the same. Mm. Um, it's very comparable. But if you're used to a barber cut that's, you know, cheap and cheerful here in Australia, which is what most men will have, well, then it, it is going to cost you more. But you get so much more than you do here. Like you have the beautiful – did you have the beautiful hand massages while you were having your hair no, washed? No, I saw our video and noticed you getting a hand massage and I didn't. Didn't I you one. get a no, hand massage? No. You were ripped off this yes. time. Right, well, next time we're there, you'll have to ask. <clears throat> no, I did remember this time when we first went there, Charlene asked if I'd washed my hair this in the, in the morning and I said I had. And she said, oh, well, there's no point then doing the hair oil test to see oh, what, no. what shampoo suits you and all the rest of it. So right. Okay. I remember that this time I only washed it with, uh, rinsed it without any using shampoo. Okay, great tip. If you're going to Chalene, do not wash your hair that morning beforehand. And if you do, just don't tell them because <laughs> you want to get the full experience. It's so amazing. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I recall one afternoon that we just meandered around the Marais. Do you remember that? In the region not far from the Rue de Rosière and also near the St. Paul area. I don't mm. think we had any plans that day, but we stumbled across the Musée de Carnavale, which had a cafe just opened in its beautiful gardens. And the museum is free to get in. It wasn't busy at all. We just wandered straight in and it was just fascinating too. I highly recommend looking it up and going there. Yeah, that was um, it's sort of signs, I guess, signs and images that are quintessentially Parisian. Yeah, and there was down the bottom floor, almost uh, like a basement, there were lots of artefacts from ancient Paris that were there yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right, yeah. When they dig down into the foundations is what they found. And, yes, yeah. Um, they could date to prehistory and those sort of things. Yeah. Then we wandered on to the Place de Vosges with its gorgeous wide colonnades and its big square and we wanted to eat there but the restaurants that were open there because it was such a hot day were very few. There were some of them were just closed. Mm, mm. And we'd sat down and apparently we'd sat at a table that was already booked for somebody else or something. I don't know. So we got up and we moved on and I didn't realise there's a little door entrance in one corner of the Place de Vosges that took us through to what seemed like a secret huge walled garden where there was a violinist playing in a little shady corner and the acoustics were just incredible and it gave the whole moment an air of some kind of, I don't know, a magical discovery. Remember that? It was fabulous. Uh, unfortunately, it was uh, the sun was beaming down. It was quite a warm day and uh, mm. there was no sort of respite from the sun except for where, as you said, in the corner where the a uh, violinist was, but the sound just echoing, well, not even echoing, it was quite a pure kind of sound. Um, it was beautiful. Actually, it's interesting you call it pure. It was. It was just the sound and the trees and the garden in the square. It's like it filled you 
it was just, it was all around you. It was like you were immersed in the sound. It was just beautiful. But then we walked through an archway on the other side of the garden and out into a main street where we stopped for some lunch with that waiter that you mentioned earlier who wouldn't let me practice my French. Well, <laughs> you kept switching between the two. He said, ah, it's either speak English or speak French. Well, the problem is there were some times when I couldn't make myself understood or he kind of looked at me with this quizzical look and going, I don't understand. Then I'd switch to English. He said, no, just English or just French. He wouldn't have that I was trying to practice my French on him and then he would be able to let me divert to English if I couldn't make myself understood. Mm. And so I found that he was the only person I think I've ever had who was really difficult and would not cooperate with me wanting to practice my French. Oh, I thought he was quite lighthearted about it. Yeah, you did. You weren't trying to practice your French. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but our hairdresser, Charlene, wandered by looking extraordinarily French with her chicness and carrying a big bouquet of flowers. And she stopped to chat for a bit and she let me practice my French with her in any way I wished. So anyhow, some people are good people. <laughs> So we wandered back through the Place de and we did a spot of shopping in the winding streets of the Marais before catching up with Lindy Viondier again for a little afternoon cocktail. We found the truffle shop. We had uh, we bought some uh, truffle products back home with us. An extraordinary amount of truffle. That was in and we had a uh, an indulgent pack of crisps. Truffle crisps. Yeah. That were divine. So good. With a beer. With a beer on a hot day. Fabulous. There was one thing that we were looking forward to with such anticipation in this little Paris weekend almost it was for you, and that was the last day of the Tour de France in Paris. We just happened to be there at the same time. What was that? Quite amazingly, even up to the day I left to go to Paris, I was still watching the stages um, here in Melbourne, and um, then we got over there and uh, we knew that the last day was going to be the Sunday. And so the streets were just full of people in uh, the Melanger, the yellow jersey tops that they uh, yes. uh, street vendors sell. So. And the polka dots. And, yeah, the polka dot of the sprint or king of the mountain. And, yeah. uh, and you could buy your favourite team colours if you wanted. And, yeah. Yeah, it's everywhere. So um, exceptionally popular. And we caught a train out there. I did a little bit of research and they suggested that you get off at the Louvre station mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and walk to the garden out the back of the palace there. The, the Tuileries. Tuileries. Mm-hmm. But we uh, managed to miss the Louvre and thought better of going to the next stop and then we'd only to find out that the next four stations were all closed. Mm. Uh train sped straight through them we get to the other side of the Arc de Triomphe and when we popped up we're sort of looking around and the closest we got to was I don't know maybe 250 meters away and I thought well this is a terrible vantage point because we can't see anything you see them whiz by for two seconds and then that's it that's it you know and then with a very limited um, you don't see them approaching, you don't see them go, it's just this uh, little window snapshot. So then we spent the next 45 minutes trying to get out of there. Uh, it was a bit like that uh, John Candy film, the planes, trains and automobiles, <laughs> <laughs> modes of transport we were pro- trying to get through. But we caught one train, then got out of there, ran to another line and got the next train and got out of there. And We thought we'd missed it, actually, because we couldn't get out of where we were we couldn't just retrace our steps and go back the other way on the train because so much was closed 
the roads were closed off. We couldn't get through. The traffic for even the buses or to get an Uber or anything like that, the traffic was at a standstill and it was a gridlock. So we we actually considered renting a bike, but then we thought, well, we don't know if we'll be able to get through the roads anyway to do that. So we ended up walking from a station that we eventually made our way to back to the Tuileries, but we crossed over the river and we were then down at the level of the water. But we could hear up above us the street that was... Ten, ten metres above us was a big brick uh, solid wall and you could hear the cyclists go past and the people cheering and yes. all the fun and... And we couldn't get up to it. So we could hear it all happening, but we just couldn't get up to see it. It no. was so frustrating. Very frustrating. And then we walked against the tide at the end to walk up just in case there was one last one and everyone couldn't be bothered waiting for the last straggler. But no, no. we'd missed them all. We got there literally as the last one had taken off. We could see them sprinting across the bridge above us, but only really the tops of them. We couldn't see the whole bike. Mm. And so it was just like the comedy of errors. It was just horrendous. Yes. But we will go back. <laughs> we'll go back. We'll go back. That's, I always say you've got to leave a reason to return. That's a reason to return. I don't know how I'll go returning in July, but... Well, it might not be the uh, finish. It could be one of the stages in one of the beautiful little <gasps> Yes. We could villages. go back for an attack. Hey, that's a bonny day, Paulie. Love that idea. So before we left Paris, we actually caught up with some beautiful friends, didn't we? Yes, that's right. Well, in 2018 uh, trip, we had uh, down south our cooking course with Jean-Marc uh, in the Luberon. We met uh, one of the participants that day was a Canadian woman called Tammy, and her and her husband, Mike, were on their honeymoon. Yeah, I actually spoke to Tammy in episode 30 of The Little Bells Francophiles about our whole experience with her when we met her and Mike down in Provence and about their experiences of travelling to France. But anyhow, they were in, happened to be in Paris this time at the same time as us uh, when we were on our honeymoon. Yes. So uh, that was a nice touch. So we had some uh, nibbles at our apartment and some champagne before making our way across town to what is apparently the oldest restaurant in Paris. Why? It's so had it's, Napoleon. It's had, oh, look, the list is endless about how many people have eaten there <laughs> at La Procop. But we actually wandered past Notre Dame and had a good look at that too, of, of what actually is happening with the renovation, and that was fascinating. Yeah. Then kept walking on a hot night, mind you, over to La Procop, which is over near Odeon. And we went there because it's the oldest restaurant in Paris. And I must say, I think it trades a lot on being the oldest restaurant in Paris because it does not trade on the food. It was okay, but, you know, it wasn't probably the standard that we are used to. No. For a restaurant of that calibre <laughs> and that price in Paris, it, it didn't really match up with Exactly. With There's places. a lot of uh, smaller restaurants around that have had far, far better meals at. Yeah. Um, the wait staff were fantastic. Beautiful. It was, you know, the uh, decor was perhaps a little bit tired, but it is the oldest restaurant in Paris. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> but, right. But, um, yeah, the, the meal itself was quite underwhelming. Yeah. I thought. But the little laneway out the back that 
has a covered walkway at each end and then a laneway along the middle with lots of outdoor eating and little restaurants and cafes along there is so quaint and cute and beautiful and it's worth going to those parts. And I've been there before and eaten and had drinks in those little cafes and they are fabulous. So I suppose the recommendation is that don't always just go for the flashiest or the most famous. Go and see it. Perhaps look at the TripAdvisor, look at the other recommendations for restaurants to find somewhere if you want something for a really special night out, don't just go for the name or the fame because that's what I did and, you know, it was all right, but it probably wasn't what we had expected, I suppose. There's nothing intimate about it. There's a lot of tourists there. Yeah, there were great big busloads of people coming and going, so it was pretty commercial. So from Paris on this trip, we caught the TGV de Tour where we hired a car and that's in the Loire Valley. And we've chatted about train travel and car hire on the podcast before, but is there anything that you noticed about our arrangement this time that would be valuable for our listeners who might be planning a trip to France at the moment? So the car, I, I was quite specific about the, the car I hired and go through a leading hire car company. And one is get the right size car. You don't necessarily need a big four-wheel drive, but you've got to put in your your luggage. So get the right size. We had a smaller SUV-style car, virtually brand new. I ordered a Peugeot, but it did say it would be this car or something similar. Mm -hmm. So we ended up with a Citroen C4, fabulous car. Mm -hmm. Um, We had this discussion with some friends the other night, actually, about insurances and um, car insurance now. Insurance is one of those risks that you can manage. You can take on more risk, and that might reduce your premiums, but if in the event something goes wrong, you end up paying a lot a more. higher excess. Higher, yeah. higher excesses, those sorts of things. So for me, you could be parked at a supermarket and someone opens the door and scratches your car or a trolley bangs into it, and you're then liable mm. for those damages. And there's, there's your excess <clears throat> you have to pay right there. I don't want the hassle. Mm-hmm. So I sort of... Took, took out, out the took out most most amount of insurance to just to so it will be zero at the end. And- yeah, well, that's probably good advice. The other thing I would say about train travel is, and I think I must have said this before, but you need to look at your ticket. You need to see which car you're getting in, and you need to go and line up at the spot for that car. Not so bad when you're at Montparnasse because the train waits a while, but if you're catching the train from a regional area, then the train will come in. And it will stop for only for a few minutes. And then you need to get all of your luggage on. There'll be people with bikes and pets and goodness knows what. Oh, yeah. And so (laughs) everybody's trying to jam all their luggage in different spots. Now, I like my luggage to be not three carriages away from me. I like it to at least be in the same carriage. I don't need to be right next to me. You lock up your luggage. But if you want to have it near you, you need to actually line up to be in the right spot. So that's just a little tip. So when we got to Tour, we got the car. And then we drove to one of my fave places in France, Chinon in the Loire Valley. Now, tell me what you thought of Chinon. Chinon is an absolute gorgeous medieval village. Just picture postcard perfect. The only thing we had uh, struggled with was finding a car park or the road that could take you to the car park. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a little bit of a maze, the medieval part of it. (laughs) A little bit of a maze. There are a couple of uh, town squares with um, good restaurants around, um, ice creameries, 
and it has markets a couple of days a week. We unfortunately missed both days because it was finished by the time we got there and we weren't there for the next one. But I've been there before when the markets are on and it's just wonderful. The produce that comes in, buy fabulous chevre. I've bought a basket that I still have in the house next to the front door that I use all the time. It's just a gorgeous little market that's a quintessential French market. And so if you're looking for a place like that, Chinon is your place. It's a village that's not tiny, so it's too big to be a plus beau village. And it's got enough there for everyone. It's got cycling, it's got canoeing, it's got history with the beautiful fortress. It's got so much going on. They had holiday school, holiday activities lined up yeah, on the riverbanks. that's right. And, and canoe hire and... And it's got wine, it's got chateaus, and it's only a one train ride from Paris, so it's pretty good. Yeah. We stayed at an Airbnb in Chinon in the medieval part of the town, which is on the banks of the Vienne River and has a history that goes back to prehistoric times, actually, as it's got some caves that used to be lived in that you can still go and view and people have actually set up as houses now with power and things in them. It had many significant historical events occurring through the Middle Ages right through to the Revolution. Joan of Arc actually rode out from the fortress to battle in the mid-1400s and for many, many years Chinon was the favoured royal residence. So it's actually now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and over the last maybe um, 50 years or so, I think I was told there, it's been undergoing some careful restoration. Anyway, apart from all of that, I just love the feel of the place, the weekly market, as I said, the wine of the region is fabulous, the quaint streets, the half-timbered houses, the connection to the past, the gorgeous people. You loved it there too, didn't you? It was gorgeous. You mentioned the wines. There was a, a cellar right down the end of one street under the fortress. So it, it's quite stunning. You walk up into the cliff face and then go under. The temperature is an absolute constant 12 degrees mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect for cellaring wines. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michel Plouzeau mm-hmm. was very kind, generous with his time and, and explaining the various uh, wines and all the rest. He's probably one of the bigger wine producers in the area. He actually did an interview with me, which will well, be on our YouTube <coughs> channel at some point. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he was just so wonderful with his time and explained all of the wines to us, and his English was great. So if you're going there to Chinon, go up to the end of the street. You you will ask for the carve that's under the fortress and you can't miss it, yeah. and that's well worth going to, I think. Yeah, terrific wines. Well, I think water quite a few bottles of wine there and um, just took them around and, and as gifts and drank them with other friends on the journey. Yeah. Well, I always like to buy one thing of quality on each trip rather than lots of little cheapo things, which will only get turfed out at some point or break as soon as I get home. So on this trip, I bought a beautiful jacket in the Marais on that day we talked about just before, and you surprised me with a wonderful purchase there in Chinon. Yes, um, we'd gone into the little Bricon shop uh, on one of the squares and we'd seen this platter that you took a fancy to. Mm, I loved it. It was a couple of hundred years old and I just... And and oh, you, you, we even got it. the measuring tape out to see how long it was, would it fit in our bags. And, and then I decided, oh, look, you. Oh, it'd probably break on the way home. I won't worry about it. And I was very disappointed. Yeah, but I... Um, Still quite liked it, so I went in there and purchased it and um, gave that to Louis as a little present. Yes. 
So we now have that <coughs> home and we use it all the time. Yeah. It's fabulous. It's almost, it's not a willow pattern plate. It's actually that kind of blue china pattern, but it's got a pattern that is telling the story of that French region, of yeah. the country, of the <coughs> harvest and other things that are happening in that French region. And it's quite a big oval serving dish and it's so one of a kind. So I love those kinds of purchases that are a lovely memory of a holiday well spent but also a one of a kind that you won't find anywhere else. And it's lovely to have those things in our home. You don't need a lot of things but the things you have sparking those memories, that's very special I think. Yeah. So one reason we went to Shinon talking about purchases was because it was near a house that I had this year fallen in love with on the internet. The lovely Karen Horn from Dream French Properties has been on the Little Bells Francophiles podcast before with me and she posted about a quaint little house on her Insta. I then chatted to her about it and I got in touch with the agent and the house still hadn't sold by the time we got to France. So I made an appointment to go and see it in a nearby village of Le Trois-Moutier and the agent met us at the house. Now, I was in love with the house, but what did you think of it? I was just looking at the some of the photos I've taken and um, there was an enormous amount of work to be done on the, on the renovations. Mm -hmm. um, look, it was a beautiful house and I could see a lot of potential in there, and but um, it was also on a main road that had a constant stream of trucks going past and I don't think double glazing windows would no. stop that sound, no. uh, constant sound. As, as the agent said, look... There's talk of building a bypass, but I can only sell you what is in front of you here. That's right. But apparently it used to be an old florist, a big sign, La Floriste, adorns above the doorway. Yeah. There was a three-storey house, great potential in there. The beautiful Maison Maitre style, that traditional mm. French style, and I just fell in love with the house. Every room just spoke to me, and I could see so much potential in it. It even had a cat that followed us around, and I'm such a crazy cat lady, I thought that must be a sign. But alas, really, poorly, there was just too much work to be done for the amount of time that we can realistically spend there every year. So whilst we would absolutely be up for a project, we wouldn't be able to give it the time that it needed and it would potentially fall into further disrepair, I think. So I'm so hoping that some young couple wanting to settle permanently and full-time in that region of France snaps it up, though, because it would make the most exquisite family home in a really lovely close-knit community that apparently they've got there. It's a good idea for people to think about that if they're considering purchasing in France. How much time are you going to spend there and how much of that time do you want to spend actually working on the project? And what quality do you want to have with the time you're actually getting to spend in France? So if we were moving there forever full-time, wacko, off we go, but we're not. So... So then the agent said, well, if you're um, up for a bit of renovation work, I've got another place in, a, in another village. It's about 20 minutes further away from here called uh, Richelieu. My, Richelieu. Richelieu, yeah. which is a, um, a gated city established around the 1600s. 1600s around that time, yeah, yeah by the Cardinal Richelieu. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and that was divine, that village. It was a gorgeous big square. It has a couple of weekly markets Anyway, for us, the search continues. So we stayed the night after going to Richelieu 
in another little village called Montmorillon with fellow podcaster and amazing chef extraordinaire, our lovely friend Andrew Pryor. Yeah, it was terrific to uh, meet Andrew. I've uh, listened to your podcast with him. Yes. Andrew was so generous because he actually said to me, you're not going to go and stay somewhere else. You're coming to stay with me. And I said, okay, then we'll come to stay with you. And he made for us a seven-course meal. So we had, I'm going to go through the courses. We had bruschetta, then a tomato gazpacho. Then we had a trout riette, which is like a trout done in a fat, I think, Paulie, and mm. you spread it. It's cold and you spread it on on little toasts and we had an individual serve each of those, which was huge. Then we had divine confit de canard with home pickled cherries. Home pickled cherries. Can you believe mm. it? And potato gratin. And then we had three different kinds of fromage. And then we had a peach sorbet, which was homemade from the peaches from Andrew's own jardin. And then the last course, which was unbelievable was a meringue with lemon curd chantilly cream and strawberries from his garden also Mm. it was just an exquisite meal i had to roll myself into bed by the end because it was just so beautiful (laughs) that from beginning to end i couldn't stop myself from eating everything in front of me because everything he placed in front of us was just exquisite. He is an incredible chef. Yeah, it was wonderful, wonderful dining experience. And um, Andrew was most offended when I um, suggested I couldn't finish the cheese because <laughs> I was fully wrong. What? <laughs> he was. But I often talk about my favourite meal of my entire life of being one that I had in a farmhouse in the Dordogne. And this is equal to that. His meal that he cooked for us is, for me, one of the best meals of my entire life. It was just exquisite from beginning to end. We were sitting out in his garden. It was just so beautiful. He was such a wonderful host with his golden retriever fur babies, Louie and Lenny, and unfortunately his husband Peter was away. But we had such a wonderful stay with Andrew in his stunning home and garden. And the next day he and I took a beautiful morning stroll while you had a little lay-in and continue to digest the meal from the night before. <laughs> we took a little walk with the pupsters through Montmorillon and he pointed out loads of interesting sites to see. And, you know, even in little obscure villages like that, which we've never heard of or I hadn't heard of until Andrew told me about it, there are such fabulous things to see and experience. So sometimes it's good to go off the beaten track in France and just experience these unusual and different places. Anyway, after that, we did the road trip down south to Bayonne. Yeah, so there were sort of two options of getting there. One was the slight detour to the main highway that will take you straight down there, or you could take the more scenic route around some of the B and C numbered roads, Mm -hmm. which is what we did, which took a little bit longer uh, overall, but it was just such a beautiful drive. It's so pretty. Yeah. So we stayed a week or so with our Lulabelle's Francophile's fave French correspondent, Sarah Swick from Be My Guest Immersions, and her family, who referred to themselves to me as my French family. And Sarah hosts immersions in their beautiful home in the Basque region, and they are so welcoming. Was the Basque what you expected? Because you haven't been there before. I didn't actually have any expectations, really. Um, I've, a little bit of what I've read about the Basque region is that they're fiercely proud of their French culture and their Spanish influence. Yeah. 
in Definitely. And that can bear out in some of the architecture, mm-hmm. some of the meals, um, particularly seafood dishes. Mm. But other than that, I didn't really have much of a particular expectation of yeah. Well, we were there during the time of the Fête de Bayonne, which is an incredible festival that always starts on the Wednesday before the first Sunday in August. And as a tourist, I think, after being there with Sarah and her mum and dad, Françoise and Jean-Paul, I think as a tourist it would be very difficult to navigate the whole of the Fête de Bayonne without some preparation. So if you're intending on going to the Fête de Bayonne, the Bayonne Festival, make sure you do a little homework before you get there. I'll pop the links to the local websites to help anyone planning a visit during the festival period. But it is the most extraordinary festival I've participated in. Um, Just so much fun. And the vibrancy of it, there was no, you know, people were drinking pitchers of Punch. Punch, they call it. Yeah, actually punch, but they call it punch. Uh, punch. Um, or beer or wine, whatever it was. Sangria. Sangria. Loads of sangria. Yeah, local sangria. But no drunken, disorderly behaviour. No. It was just... No messiness. Civility. No messiness. No messiness. No. We discover there's a whole network of dedicated bus services too to take people to and from the festival, which runs so efficiently. We would have had no idea about this stuff. So because we were going with people that have been there before, we just followed the line. And you can find all of that out on the websites that are mm-hmm. dedicated to the Fed to Bayonne, the local council and their websites. So it's important to check all that stuff out if you're going to be there. There are also some particular customs to be aware of when making your preparations. Everyone wears white to this festival. Now, I knew that before we went. So if you're planning on going for more than one day, make sure you pack enough white clothes to get through all of your planned days of shenanigans. Uh, Also, most people wear a red scarf around the neck, which you can buy in stalls near the entrance to the festival if you don't have one, and a red sash like a cummerbund, I suppose, around the waist. But I only discovered afterwards when we got back here that this red sash was originally for the blokes, but now the women wear it too as it's a good thing to hold on to when walking with a group of friends through the packed crowds so you can hold on to it and be in like a, a train behind each other so no one gets separated or lost. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Sarah told me that no. afterwards. Very but, clever. Um, yeah, it was terrific. Well, one environmentally friendly concept that they have at the Fête de Bayonne <laughs> is these little plastic cups printed differently each year and collected by festival goers. People all bring their cups back each year and then just exchange them for new ones at all of the bars throughout the city. So you come with a cup that you start drinking from, you swap them for fresh ones throughout the evening and you go home with a cup in the end, which is brilliant for recycling. You come with one, you leave with one. And we didn't see one single overflowing rubbish bin like we would in Australia at a festival either. Everybody took the cup with them because they're collectibles. Mm. And they don't really care if they don't get one from this year. They'll get one from this year and buy one to keep if they have to. But you just take it and swap it and get another one. And so we ended up with some from 2011 or something. We've got, you know, a couple of other cups that we got. There are just loads of things to see and experience, which I chatted about with Sarah in podcast episode number 71. So if anyone's planning on going there, Go back and have a listen to 71 because you'll be able to hear Sarah's tips in that. And things like marching bands wandering through the crowds playing and traditional bands on stages and times when actually the whole crowd at sometimes just broke into dances when I just wasn't prepared for that. They just started 
dancing to whatever the traditional song was yeah. that was being yeah. played by the band on the stage. I think, what is going on? Everyone's just started dancing. And then I realised the whole square was dancing and hopping and jumping in the same pattern in the same way. So I really tried to learn the dances with them. I wasn't so flush at that. Gave it a boo. But I wasn't prepared mostly for how welcoming and beautiful the people were. They were just so good to us. They were so patient with us and they were just so warm. Yeah. What was your favourite thing from the Bayland Festival? I was just looking through the videos I took on my phone and um, had a really big smile on my face watching back and just mm-hmm. seeing all the people, as you say, the dancing, the traditional dancing, the singing, you know, a popular song comes on and everyone is up and about for it. Yes. <laughs> you know, where they people sitting on the ground and then they pass someone to the back. I know all those games they <coughs> yeah. were playing. Yeah. They sat in this long line. It started off with like three or four people and someone would run up and jump on them and they'd catch the person and pass the person along all of the people sitting on the ground. To the back of it and then that person joins the back yeah, of the line they for sit the, next down, person the next person to come person. through. And then the line sitting down <laughs> ends up getting so long and they're passing these people. that Like some of them were passing... You know, it's like 50 metres they were going along this line of people in some of the parts of the square. It was quite incredible. Now, we also did some driving around the cute Basque villages while we were down there. We visited the port town of Saint-Jean-de-Luz, which I've stayed in a number of years ago for an extended period in in other trips, which has the exquisite church of St John the Baptist that Louis XIV had built for his marriage to Princess Maria Theresa of Spain. That was how he showed the people of the Basque region how important they were to him because he thought, he said, I'm coming down here to get married here, so, you know, you've got to stay and be French because look how important I must Hmm. think you are. And it worked because they've remained French all this time ever since. And we had lunch there in St. Jean de Luz as well in the shadows of that church. You loved that town too, didn't you? Absolutely stunning. Mm. Um, the church is quite amazing if you and you think back to, you know, 1430 or whatever it was. Yeah. And there's a little plaque outside that after they, uh, the king and queen were married, they walked out this side entrance and then the brick masons immediately plastered that entrance up so no one else could have walked through it again. Yes. It was bricked over because it was thought to be just <clears throat> too special for other mere mortals to R- wander rather through. Rather glorious. Only, yes, <laughs> yes. The kings were a little bit vain, weren't they, those French kings back then? Probably why they're not around today, no, I wonder. But mm. a spectacular church all the same. Yes, stunning. Um, and being a town based on the sea, the Atlantic Ocean, um, some of the seafood there was just amazing. The yeah. lunch we had uh, was spectacular. Actually, you said the fish that you had there at that lunch, you had a fish dish, which you said was one of the best ones you've ever had, yep. ever. Yep. I had the moufrit, the mussels, and that was divine. It was jam-packed everywhere, the restaurants, because they were so good. Yeah, and they're looking for a car, looking for a car park. We were sort of driving around. Oh, well, didn't we go to a um? Went to a Swisho. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we went to a Swisho hotel first. Oh, actually, we went there to have coffee in the morning, and they weren't open yet. No. So we went in anyway, and it turned out to be this really ritzy hotel that was on the coast, on the top of a cliff, with a view of the Atlantic to die for, and so. <laughs> We just went in there and Sarah and I went for a little wander down the gardens and I think you sat down and started to read the paper and just sat under this yeah, beautiful tree there. Time. Gorgeous. <laughs> just made ourselves at home and nobody said a word. 
it was a gated <clears throat> community though, and we just kind of found our way in there and had a lovely little sojourn for a moment, and then uh, left and kept going into the main part of Saint Jean Blues. Yeah, that's right. And and so going back, you could see people who were going to the Fête de Bayonne because they are literally all dressed in the white with the yes, red sash waiting and, for and the waiting. And so the bus network that ferries people to and from the uh, Fête de Bayonne is quite extensive. Extends yeah. to there, yeah. I love the little village of Sauveterre de Bern, which we also went to after St. Jean de Luz. And Sarah took us there. It was so quaint on the side of a hill with a medieval church and a restaurant, which was almost more like a pub. Kind of unusual in France because you don't get pub-style places much. It had a deck uh, with a beautiful view over the valley and a creek down below. And I love the little houses there too. And there were a few for sale, as I recall. And you might have tried to get me out of there before I could buy one. Correct. Mm. It was lovely to meander around the Basque region with Sarah, though, wasn't it? Oh, it have someone um, who was born and raised and still lives in that region and is so passionate about that region. Um, yeah. Fantastic. There's a kind of a genuineness to the experience or an added depth that you get by exploring the region with a local, I think, and Sarah is such a calm and laid-back and knowledgeable guide the whole region just has a relaxed feel to it, though, regardless of whether you have a guide or not. There are a number of Plubeau villages, which are villages that meet the criteria to be declared one of the most beautiful villages in France. And we visited La Bastide Clérence, which was founded in 1312. Now, I'll pop some pics on the Little Bells Insta for people to check out that one. But even the villages that don't fit the normal criteria of the Plubeau village rules are just so gorgeously quaint with their stone walls and their painted shutters and tiny streets with greenery just finding any tight spot to grow from and then it tumbles out <laughs> over the buildings. I also love their quirky doors because some of the doors and doorways around there, they're just like works of art. I mean, I know they are in Paris, but down there they're mm. quite ancient and they're just beautiful works of art. One thing that everyone should try, though, when in the pay basque, is the Piment d'Espelette. The Piment d'Espelette is like a um, a capsicum, which is slightly on the chilly spectrum. Yeah. Slightly, quite a mild. But, yeah. Mild um, for you, not mild for some people. Well, yeah, it just gives a, a fantastic flavour, that sort of the sweetness of the capsicum plus the, um, the a little, little bit of a heat to it of the chilli side. Um, and you can go to, to the market, you can pick up the goat's cheese, the chevre with Piment d'Espelette in there or the salamis, uh, oh, uh, cured yeah. meats and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, you bought a, uh, a quaint little jar of it with a little wooden spoon that uh, mm. attaches to the side. So that sits beside the stove cooktop at home and um, yeah. occasionally throw some Piment d'Espelette into a dish. Into a meal. Well, my biggest disappointment on this visit to the Basque was the Petit Tran de la Rune. Yes. It's a, a little village. Um, you drive up half uh, the side of a mountain and you get to this little village and they've got a two-carriage train that takes you up to the top of the mountain. So yeah. you actually start off in France and by the time you get to the top of the mountain, you're in Spain. And on a good day, it affords you a spectacular view out over the Basque region and back over into all the fields inland, over to Spain, mm. uh, all out over the Atlantic Ocean. 
Unfortunately for us, uh, we got to stand in the middle of a cloud for most of our time there. I know. It wasn't until we were actually back on the train leaving that the cloud decided to clear up and you get to see some oh, of those no, stunning views. I was devastated. It's not as high <clears> as some <throat> other mountains in France because it's 905 metres, but the views, as you say, are just amazing. From the top, you can see Spain one way and France the other, and there's these plaques up the top. As you're standing there looking out of Spain, you're standing in front of this plaque that actually is of a photo of what you're looking at, and that describes what villages and towns you can see stretched out below the mountain. So they've got one in each direction, so you can see what you're looking at and you can mm. pick out. We could pick out uh, Bayonne <coughs> and Saint-Jean-de-Luz and Saint-Martin de Saignance, which is where Sarah lives. We could pick out all those things from up the top. But we got there early because of the predicted heat that day, but unfortunately it was still above the clouds for some reason, so we couldn't see a thing through the mist. I've been there before and I was so looking forward to showing it to you as the view is just unbelievable, but unfortunately we were out of luck that day. But we did have a nice sort of time there. We had a baguette and a, uh, and a coffee there. And we did get to see the wild horses that live along the track called Pochoc. They're so beautiful. They're actually a registered separate breed of horse in Spain and they're in danger of extinction, so it was wonderful to see those. Now, what was one thing that you would go back to the Pays Basque to see again? Actually, there might be many things you would want to see again, but not including our beautiful French family near Bayonne. What's just one thing you would recommend to others and would want to go back to see again? Oh, the fate to Bayonne. Go do it. Experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's just fun. It is, isn't it? Um, That's the one word to describe it. It's just fun. It's fun. Well, I would go back again to the Fête de Bayonne as well, I think. Now I know a bit more about it because there's so many things we didn't get to do at the Fête de Bayonne. I didn't get to see the bulls. I didn't get to see some of – they have these bizarre kind of sporting events where the, the men do great big pole throwing, which is like throwing of great big tree trunks and, you know, like yeah, those yeah. kinds of things they do where they have wife-carrying races and things like that. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> think, I don't know if they do that, but it's one of those kinds of, you know, silly shenanigans going on. And so we didn't get to see that this time because we missed out. We were doing something else at that day. So I'd like to go back and see those sorts of things too because they're kind of culturally. competition. Yeah, and culturally specific to them. Now, in the Little Bells Francophiles podcast, there are a couple of questions that we always ask. The first one I'm going to ask you, Paulie, is what's a fave dish you had in this part of the road trip that you can share with the listeners? Well, being so close to the Atlantic Ocean, some of the seafood dishes we had were just fantastic, yes. weren't they? Yes, they were amazing. With the bar sauce, um, yeah. those sort of things. But um, at one of the Plus Beau Village that we went to, the La Bastide. La Bastide um, Clarence. Yeah. Um, we picked up a cake there to take back to our French family called a Gâteau Basque. Yes. And that was just lovely, you know, one of their great traditions. Yeah. Um, It was more like a pastry than a cake, but they call it a gâteau bar. Yeah. You can get two styles, one's Mm. with a cream, which is more like a custard than a cream, and the other one with cherries. Yeah, cerise. cerise. So, yeah, that's kind of special, you know. It was so beautiful. We got the cream one, and Mm. apparently... There are all different places that do them 
but the locals know the best ones to get, and apparently we got a good one, mm. according to Sarah. So I was thrilled. But we took that for dinner. When we had dinner with our family and a number of other friends, yeah. and it was so, so divine. I love, love, loved it. Well, I think we will put a link to a recipe for people to make their own ghetto basque, as well as some places in Melbourne that we might be able to buy it, because I know there are a couple of places that you can get a ghetto basque. Mm. So I think I'll do both, a recipe and any places that I know of where we can buy them in Melbourne, because as we're heading into Christmas, that would be something to take to a family occasion. Now, the next question given that we heard so much music at the Fête de Bayonne, was there a favourite that you recall that we could pop onto our Little Bell's Francophile Spotify playlist? We have already shared the ripper French version of December 1963, you know, the one that we all sang yeah. and loved. Loved it. C'est année là. C'est année là. Because of that. <laughs> and when I chatted to Sarah about the festival, we shared that on the Spotify playlist then. So can you think of another? Well... As we were driving along, scanned the radio to, for a radio station to listen to because I couldn't quite work out how to connect my phone to get my Spotify playlist or whatever. Anyhow, this one station we found called LFM played a unique mix of English and French music. wasn't necessarily always pop, but... They played an extraordinary amount of Australian music, which was really correct, bizarre, didn't they? Correct. So I remember as we were driving, driving down on the Thursday and uh, here in Australia, that was the last episode of Neighbours. And anyhow, on, on comes uh, a song called Torn by Natalie Imbuglia, who happened to be start her career as an actress on Neighbours. Um, so we were driving along, singing that at the top of our voices, yes, hamming it up. That, we was, were. that was very funny. <laughs> that was great Very fun. funny. But... Uh, there was also a Harry Styles song that came on maybe two or three times a day, yes. which sort of reminded me of my uh, daughter. Who's back at home. Back at home. So yeah. um, that was nice. But there was one French song that was a bit annoying, and but you'd hear that two or three times a day and could have a sing-along called Pierce Jatam. I loved it. It was really kind of uh, – it made me think of – really cool slinky jazz clubs or something. It was really kind of very now, I Mm. suppose is the way to put it. And I loved it. So I'm going to put that one in the Spotify playlist because we have a lot of traditional music. We've got a lot of music from the 60s and 70s. We have a lot of music that people like, you know, from the 80s, 90s as well. And occasionally we get some stuff that's new, and I love that. I love that we've got something that goes right from that traditional chanson style yep. right up mm-hmm. to what's happening right now in France. So, yeah, let's, let's share that one. That's a goodie. Excellent. Well, merci beaucoup for sharing your thoughts with us today, mon chérie. Pleasure, darling. We will share part two of our wonderful road trip in our next Papatage de podcast, our next episode chat next week. Alors, c'est tout et c'est la fin aujourd'hui. That is all for another Little Bells Francophiles episode. I hope that you're enjoying being transported to France via our podcast chats with some brilliant guests and their French stories. To be notified when new episodes are released, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform or follow Little Bells Francophiles on Insta. That's where you'll also find loads of my personal French photos as well as some from our Little Bells Francophiles guests. You can now also subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Francophile Fix, where I post little movies and clips to keep your Frenchy vibes going. For all the links from today's chat, including the links for some of the places we visited, 
as well as our music, a recette, head to the Ludabelle's Francophiles website to blog post number 79, Soisant The website link is in the show notes for today's episode as well. Come and join us next time on the Ludabelle's Francophiles and together we can stay connected to one of our fave destinations, France. Au revoir and merci encore, Paulie. Au revoir. Au revoir de moi, Louise Prichard. Bonne journée et à bientôt, mes amis.